bugs in OpenSSL, another crypto heist, and phishing. So much phishing. All that and more, it's the Naked Security Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome to the podcast. I'm Doug. That's Paul. We got a lot to talk about today. And Paul, you know me. I love to start the show with a fun fact. And my fun fact for you this week is that I've now several times I've seen this so-called fun fact that Buckingham Palace has 775 rooms, 78 of which are bathrooms. However, that's only about a 10% bathroom ratio, which actually seems really small to me as an American. By comparison, the White House has 132 rooms, 35 of which are bathrooms, which is about a 25% bathroom ratio. And true to form, my average American house has 12 rooms, three of which are bathrooms, which is also a 25% ratio. So perhaps we Americans, we don't like being too far from a bathroom. Yeah. And the average American hotel has one bathroom per room. You're right. As ratios go, it's low. But the number of rooms is majestically high. Yeah. Maybe someday I'll visit there and uh, do they give tours? Is that a thing? I don't know, Doug. I've been past it very many times because if you are a cyclist like me and you take your bicycle to London when you're going on business and you ride from the stations that I arrive at coming from Oxford and you're riding into the city, you invariably go right past or you can easily go down the mall and uh, you go right round the roundabout right in front of it. Last time I was in London was for a... Uh... I was a reporter, and I was uh, there reviewing a phone, and I went out to dinner with some other reporters, and I accidentally set my menu on fire. So not a, uh, a great showing from me, but I will do my best next time to not set my menu on fire. Anywho, speaking of fires, this OpenSSL bug, it's bad, and there's two of them. Well, Doug, let's start with the second of the two, CVE-2021-37. 12. The other one's the one before, 11, but we'll start with 12. It's a read buffer overrun when reading encoded strings. And TLS, Transport Layer Security, the protocol that puts the padlock in your browser and encrypts your email in transit, when it's dealing with things like cryptographic keys, it encodes them using a slightly old-fashioned encoding technique called ASN.1 which I think is Abstract Syntax Notation version 1. These days, we'd probably use JSON with all its strengths and weaknesses. In the 2000s, if TLS had come out then, we'd probably have used XML, but it came out in the 1990s. We use this sort of binary format where you don't just say, well, we're going to reserve four bytes for this, six bytes for that, 12 bytes for a string. You actually have some stuff mixed in with the data to tell you how to interpret what comes next. The idea is it's supposed to make parsing the data easier. And the bottom line in that is that ASN.1 strings, if you've ever been a programmer, are more like Pascal strings than C strings. Because Pascal strings, and many other programming languages, when you want to keep text, you have some bytes at the start that tell you how long the string is, and then that many bytes of data. That's a great way of doing it because it means you can see up front at the start of the string how much space you're going to need if you want to copy it. You can tell how long the string is if you need to measure it without going through the whole thing every time. And it means you can have any character you like in the string 
because there's no magic character that denotes that it has finished. C, on the other hand, takes the simple approach. It says, no, the way we're going to do a string, because you never want to print a character that doesn't exist, the so-called null character, zero byte, basically a C string is any string of characters until you see a zero. And that's annoying if you want to calculate the length of a string because you have to traverse the string every time, counting along until you hit a zero. It also means, as you can imagine, if you accidentally forget the zero at the end of a C string, things can go horrendously wrong. And this has been a source of zillions of bugs in history. You go and copy the string and you copy up until the next zero, but it doesn't come for three years <laughs> and you copy half of the memory when you're only supposed to copy 20 bytes or something like that. Or you print something out and then you print out the message you were supposed to, followed by acres of text that just happens to follow in memory, maybe text that belonged to someone else. So what the OpenSSL developers did is they figured we'll try and cater for both worlds. We'll store the strings in ASN.1 format inside the data structures. So we'll have a length followed by the text. And then at the end, we'll always stick in a null byte, a zero byte, just in case somebody wants to treat them as C strings using C functions for simplicity and speed so that they won't get caught out. And therefore, we'll have, if you like, bimodal or multipurpose strings. They can be passed by ASN.1 code. They can be used directly as C strings and everyone will be happy. So their heart is in the right place, but I could follow that up with what could possibly go wrong. What can go wrong, Doug, particularly if you are parsing or processing ASN.1 data that came from someone else, say the other side of a network connection, is you have no guarantee that they constructed that data using open SSLs, bimodal, let's please all of the people all of the time functions. They could have created those strings with their own programming library that knows it doesn't need null bytes at the end of strings and didn't put them there. Or even worse, they could have figured you're using OpenSSL. I bet you're relying on this bimodality. I'm going to create ASN.1 data that deliberately doesn't have those null bytes. And I'm going to put poison stuff at the end of my strings. And I'm going to hope that you choke on it or that you accidentally reveal more than you should. And that basically is the bug huh. that unfortunately there are even places inside OpenSSL's own code where they assume that they can use those strings directly from C without checking that they have a null byte in the right place first. And that misbehavior, if you like, has now been fixed. So a lot of people worry about a buffer overflow leading to a write, but why is a read overflow so bad in this case? Well, the problem with, Doug, with a, a buffer overflow where you overflow when you're writing stuff into memory is you may be able to control the future behavior of the program. With a read overflow, the risks are a little bit lower. But firstly, you could trigger it so the program reads on and on and on and on so far that eventually it runs off the end of the memory allocated to the current program and causes a memory access violation and a crash. So it could provoke a denial of service attack. But worse, it means, as I mentioned earlier, that you could trick a program into printing a string that maybe is just supposed to be, say, a username of 16 characters. But what might come back 
is 16 characters of username followed by whatever happened to follow it in memory, which could be something that's actually secret and isn't meant to be shown to anybody else, like a web page that you just processed for somebody else, like a password that's in memory temporarily, or whatever. And lots of people will remember the infamous Heartbleed attack, which was also a bug in OpenSSL, caused by a read overflow, where basically you would send a special packet to, to the other end, saying, are you still alive? Send me a heartbeat. And you'd send it a string like, hello. And you'd say, oh, by the way, that string's five characters long. Send it back to me. But what you could do is you could say, hello, respond, but send me 64 kilobytes of text instead. And what you get is the text hello back, followed by whatever followed in memory. And attackers quickly figured out how to exploit that by manipulating the way things are lined in memory that they could even bleed out things like private cryptographic keys. It was difficult to do, but possible. And so read overruns of this sort can dangerously lead to leaked data or data breaches. And that's always bad. So read overruns, they might not let you control a program or implant malware, but they might give away the keys to the castle so you can come back in later and implant malware in some other way. Okay, so that's bug number two, which is the less serious, than bug <laughs> number one, which is the more serious. 2021-3711. Now, this is a buffer overflow, and it comes from the fact that TLS 1.3, which is the latest version of the TLS protocol, was deliberately stripped down from TLS 1.2 and TLS 1.1 so that it didn't have so many options where programmers could easily make mistakes and choose weird mixtures of encipherment algorithms and hashing algorithms and cryptographic curves and all that sort of stuff. And so TLS 1.3 allows just five different what we call cipher suite combinations instead of dozens that you could use in TLS 1.2. The idea was let's throw out the old and bring in the new. And I th if I'm not mistaken, it was to make TLS, we want people to use it and the, by kind of simplifying it like this or cutting out a bunch of the different things you could do that it was to make it faster because it was kind of people were complaining that it would slow things down a bit right the handshake well there is there are some features in there that allow it not to have to talk back and forth and back and forth and back and forth so long so there are some performance improvements but to me an even more important part of it was just saying you know what we're going to reduce the absurdly huge number of combinations of algorithms you can use which means that it's much less likely that people will write code that does TLS legally, but dangerously or insecurely. Gotcha, okay. In particular, with TLS 1.3, you have to use what is called forward secrecy, where there's a part of the exchange process where you generate brand new cryptographic keys every time so that unless someone steals them while that particular transaction is in process, you've got no chance of unscrambling the encrypted data later, which was a risk with a lot of accepted TLS modes in the past. So there was this element of let's simplify it so it's much harder to code it up wrongly. What I was uh, alluding to is the actual handshake process. They make the, uh, the back and forth a little more simplified, but they also look to simplify what way you could code into it to uh, prevent people from doing bad code. That's the idea. So faster and more likely to be more correct. Gotcha. So all good things. Great. 
Now, in March this year, I think it's RFC 8998 came out, and this introduces two new Cypher suites into TLS 1.3, and this allows two combinations of three brand new encryption algorithms that come from the Chinese government. That cryptographic suite is called Shangmi. These algorithms are SM2, SM3, and SM4. SM is short for Shangmi. And obviously the Chinese government has its own reason for wanting its own cryptographic code. Everyone kind of figures, well, why should I trust everybody else? And I guess they're big and influential enough that these three new algorithms and two new cipher suites were introduced. Now, as far as I know, there are no known problems with these encryption algorithms. So the complexity of TLS 1.3 increased just a tiny bit. Now, it seems that OpenSSL now supports those underlying algorithms, SM2, which is an elliptic curve, SM3, which is a hashing function, and SM4, which is a block cipher. And there's a bug in the SM2 part that could cause a buffer overflow. But here's the good bit. <laughs> OpenSSL doesn't yet allow you to engage or to turn on the new settings that say use those algorithms in a TLS connection. So although this bug could be exploited by feeding booby-trapped data to decrypt, causing a 62-byte buffer overflow, which almost certainly could cause remote code execution, it does seem that in real life, there's no way for you to run a booby-trapped server and to persuade someone at the other end who is using OpenSSL to accept one of the Shengmi cipher suites in the first place. So the bug's there, but it seems that it's very, very hard for anyone to trick you into turning it on because OpenSSL was only halfway there and now they've fixed the bug. Hmm. So that's the bad news. The bug could have been quite serious. The good news, it seems that it was caught in time, which is great. Okay, so what can people do aside from, of course, upgrading to the latest version? Well, as you say, the upgrade is the easiest part. But if you can't upgrade for whatever reason, it is possible if you're using an older version of OpenSSL, you could just rebuild it and say, exclude these Shangmi cipher algorithms because they're kind of pointless having in there because you can't really use them anyway in a TLS connection. There's a way that you can rebuild the existing version that you might have with those ciphers excluded, and then you couldn't use them even if you wanted to, even though you can't use them even if you wanted to. And the last thing, advice for programmers in general, is always assume the very worst about the data you're going to get. And this is a way of avoiding bugs like that ASN.1 flaw. Presumably the programmers assumed that any string that would be processed by OpenSSL had been created by OpenSSL and therefore it would be safe to be used either in the ASN way or the C way. And that wasn't the case. So never assume that data that you are going to have to take apart was constructed with the same care that you might have built it yourself. Because it could have been constructed dangerously by mistake, or just as likely, it could have been put together as a deliberately crafted booby-trapped packet by someone with your worst interests at heart. Okay, that is big bad decryption bug in OpenSSL, but no cause for alarm on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And we move along to yet another crypto heist. These seem to be happening more and more often. 
And this one is interesting in that it's kind of a timing thing. Yes, another, oh dear, I wish we hadn't programmed it like that. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And unfortunately, this company, it seems, picked the wrong way. So the previous stories we've had about this whole, what do you call it, DeFi, mm -hmm. not Hi-Fi, not Wi-Fi, but <laughs> DeFi, decentralized finance. That's the cool thing at the moment. You use blockchain technology and so-called smart contracts where you have a whole lot of cryptocurrency sitting sort of live inside someone's cryptocurrency exchange. And instead of saying, I want to send three and a half of this sort of coin to Doug now, what you do is you actually create what's called a smart contract. It's basically code that describes how you want to spend your transactions depending on other things that happen. So somebody can pay you money. You say, well, I get money from Doug in particular. Then that means I want to pay half of a bill that I'm owing to so-and-so. I want to keep half of the rest for myself and the other bits go to a third party. So smart contracts, it's very cool. The idea is they can operate very quickly. But of course, one of the goals of this whole DeFi decentralized idea is you don't have to go through the rigors and the checks and balances and the boring slow processes and the oversight and all the fussy regulatory stuff that you would have to do if you use traditional banking and the man was looking at what you were doing. Now, of course, if the man is looking at what you're doing, there are some downsides to that. But the good sides are that A, there's some regulatory oversight, which means there are some, some things that you have to get right. And there are some financial protections in case you don't for your customers. And B, that there's centuries of experience in the community about why you might want to be conservative about some things. And these guys had a botch in their smart contract system that's called a re-entrancy or a recursion problem. And apparently, just like with the Poly Networks hack that we spoke about a couple of podcasts ago, 600 million. And just like the liquid hack we talked about last week, 100 million. Well, this is only 13 million, only 13 million, Doug. But the same sort of thing. <laughs> It was a, a rogue smart contract, which basically allowed you to spend some money and that would trigger the same smart contract again that would spend the same money, which would trigger the same contract, which would spend the same money over and over and over and over again with your balance. Say you wanted to spend a thousand units, your balance would be checked up front and then you could spend that balance N times where N might be a large 13 million dollar worth number mm -hmm. and the let's set the balance to zero only happened at the very end after you'd spent the same money over and over and over again and it's called a re-entrancy problem or a recursion problem because the idea is you're calling back into the other person's smart contract over and over again so you call them and say i want to do a transaction they check your balance they process your code before they debit you the amount that they think you're going to spend. And as part of spending it, you call their transaction code again saying, hey, I want to spend some more money. And you're going back into the same function that checks your balance again, where the first invocation has not yet debited your account. And there are lots of different ways in which this can happen. It doesn't have, it could be a, a interaction between multiple smart contracts. And you layer essentially a ghost transaction on ghost transaction on ghost transaction until some sort of limit is reached. And by then, 
it's kind of too late because this is DeFi, remember? It's unregulated. And as Poly Networks found out, when someone runs off with all your money, the only way you're probably going to get it back is if you ask them really, really, really nicely and they agree. Uh, this is a brilliant insight by me, but this seems like this shouldn't be allowed to happen. How, there's got to be a way to program some sort of fail-safe in here, some sort of governor to prevent this from happening. Is it, is it predicated on the speed at which you repeat this false transaction, or can you do it if you do this once every 12 hours and they just don't catch it? Does it still work? Well, Doug, we don't know exactly what form the bug took in this case. In the article on Sophos Naked Security, I've described it in terms of a single smart contract triggering your smart contract code, which calls back into the original smart contract code. So it's basically there isn't a whole chain of events needed. But the problem is it's down to doing things in an insecure order. And the problem comes as when we were speaking about TLS and TLS 1.2 and all this litany of choice that makes it more likely that you're going to get things a little bit wrong. The problem is that writing secure smart contracts is hard mm -hmm. and detecting that a smart contract has this potential sort of bug in it or that a combination of smart contracts when triggered in sequence have this kind of bug in it is even more difficult. Now, in decentralized finance, where it's the latest big thing, like social networks were in the 2000s, and everything still seems to be predicated upon move fast and break things, the financial sector seems to be one of those sectors in which you couldn't really think of anything worse than move fast and break things. Mm, yeah. You wouldn't want it in engineering, would you? Bridge design. You wouldn't want it in machines that do medical intervention while you're on the operating table, say the machine that decides how much anesthetic you're going to get. You hope that they weren't hacking on it last night till two in the morning. So why would you want that in something that's playing potentially fast and loose with your money? And I guess the answer is that, hey, they're exciting times. So people are taking unnecessary risks. With smart contracts, you're kind of expected, hey, I'll do a little, little bit of hacking in this super cool programming language all by myself. What could possibly go wrong? Well, here's the article that shows you just that. This is wild, quite literally wild. Yes, I think that is the literal use of the word literal there, Doug. Yeah. Be careful out there, folks. Yep. It's, it's easy to dig a hole much deeper than you first thought. And one that keeps digging itself. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> deeper and deeper. Yeah. Self-perpetuating <laughs> hole. Initial problem. <laughs> yes. Um, we talked As about. As the dictionary says, recursion. Yeah. <laughs> See, recursion. <laughs> hole, dig hole. Um, we talked about this on yes. last week's show, I believe. Um, but same basic tips. Uh, don't bet sure. more than you can afford to lose. And um, we had a discussion about the difference between hot wallets and cold wallets. And in this case, don't keep all your funds in a hot state. Yes, as Chester put it, just how liquid do you really need your precious cryptocurrencies to be? Last week, we were talking about liquid. The company was called liquid, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. But they're now, they're now basically sucking up a $100 million loss. Looks like they might survive, but goodness knows how. So yes, definitely don't bet more than you can afford to lose. And that's not just 
the old advice, investments may go down as well as up. Investments may evaporate in a puff of non-existent smoke if you aren't careful. And there are no or very few regulatory protections that allow you to get a statutory minimum amount of your investment back like you would with things like bank accounts in most developed countries. Okay. So that is uh, skimming the cream, recursive withdrawals, loot 13 million in crypto cash on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And one of our favorite segments now is this week in tech history. This week in 1969, the first interface message processor, or IMP, a precursor to what we might today call a router or router, was delivered to UCLA in an effort to begin connecting geographically dispersed computer systems together to begin forming what we might today call the internet. Subsequent IMPs were delivered to Stanford, UC Santa Barbara, and the University of Utah between October and December of that year. Doug, I was just wondering when you were going to get to that bit of the story, because I'm thinking, imagine you're the first person to get an <laughs> yeah, internet router. It takes two to tango here. The first person to get a telephone, you think, yeah. <laughs> now what? <laughs> yeah, so they sent out, yeah. it looks like they sent out four of these things. Um, a communication yep. test between the first two sites, which were UCLA and Stanford, about 350 miles apart, was a login attempt, which caused the, it was from the UCLA machine to the Stanford machine, and this login attempt caused the Stanford machine to crash after the first two characters were transmitted. This was a bug. It was fixed within minutes, and the login attempt then completed successfully. And for those of you keeping score, it was the letter G that caused the crash. Yes, so the first login was actually a law. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever feel bad about creating something that has a bug in it that makes it crash, just remember the very first attempt at the internet resulted in a crash. I suppose this was technically a QA test too. It wasn't quite in production yet. <laughs> <laughs> to use the modern terminology, they were in the VEAP, I think, Doug. <laughs> yes. The very early access program. Very early. Can you imagine the internet? There were four people who could be on it, and their first test was the first two. That's quite something. Yeah. What a time. Yes. Okay. Well, Good on them. thank you for the invention of the internet, which has led us to, among other things, fishing. So we have this fishing report. Uh, we did a fishing survey. It's called Fishing Insights 2021. And we've got some interesting data. This is an independent survey of 5,400 IT professionals. And um, you can use this to evaluate your own fishing security posture. But um, a lot of these companies, uh, one interesting question that was asked is, Quite simply, what do you consider to be a phishing attack? And the answers were kind of all over the board here, huh, Paul? Yes, I found that uh, a fascinating part of this story and one that it would be well worth your while to look through. So completely fake emails asking you to give away information. 43% of our respondents didn't really consider that a form of phishing. Maybe they've got another word for it. 60% of the people we surveyed, Doug, didn't consider SMS, text messages, which have, say, a dubious link in them, to be worth considering phishing. Presumably they consider them a threat of some other sort. But what that implies is when it comes to trying to teach their constituents, the users in their organisation, about the ways that crooks can trick you into giving away stuff you're not supposed to, it does look as though nobody's quite covering all the bases. 
if 60% of people are going, yep, we've got phishing training, we do it regularly, but we're not worrying about stuff that comes in by text message because, because meh, that'll never catch on. Well, good luck with that because there are loads of crooks who use that kind of trick all the time precisely because they know you've probably got aggressive email filtering in place and they also know that if you click a dodgy web link on your mobile phone there's less space on the screen for you to spot that something is wrong so although smishing is a minority crime you might call it these days we write about it sufficiently frequently on nakedsecurity.sophos.com that i think you ignore it in your phishing advice to your constituents at your peril that's my opinion and we've also seen that uh, since the pandemic started, phishing has increased. Yes. And my gut feeling there is that although it may well have increased more than it otherwise would have, I suspect it would have increased anyway. I was just thinking the because same thing. If you think about it, Doug, the, it wasn't the pandemic that made us all fall in love with cloud computing and with getting services to run in the cloud because they're easier, cheaper, faster for us, and because we don't have to set up servers where we could get them wrong. That's the good side of it. The bad side is it means that it's easier and quicker for the crooks to do it as well. And that adoption of the cloud is something that was proceeding apace before the pandemic started. It may have accelerated, Thanks to the pandemic, people figuring, well, I was thinking of putting some new servers in the rack at work, but I can't even go into work, so I'll accelerate my switch to the cloud. But the problem is that it is easier than ever to set up secure, decent-looking, TLS-protected <laughs> email and web services of your own under a fake account, even though it may only last for a week before you get rumbled and kicked off, than ever before. Like I said, I suspect that it may have increased slightly more than it would have if there had been no pandemic. But note that we're only concluding that it's increased since the pandemic started, not because of it. And what I think that means is that when this is all over and everyone's back in their offices and we're not worrying so much about the, the virus spreading and we've got things largely under control and we kind of feel that we're back to how it was, don't expect fishing to go down. This is not a while the pandemic is in place only problem. It still works for the crooks, and so there's no way they're going to give up on a good thing. There's also a fascinating case study as part of this report of how a simple phishing email led to, three months later, a $2.5 million ransomware attack and kind of steps you through how just uh, an employee clicking on a link in a phishing email set off this chain of events that led to this gigantic ransom that had to be paid out. Yes, that's a great story, like many similar stories that we've told on news.sophos.com and on nakedsecurity.sophos.com before. It's a reminder that attacks can often unfold over very much longer than you might have thought. It's not just a question of, oh, a worm got in like the old days and did some bad stuff and now all hell's broken loose. These things can be on the boil, if you like, on the simmer for months. And it's also a reminder when reading this story, that it's not like one lot of crooks need to think, you know what, I'm going to invest three months in hacking Doug starting today. It could be that one lot of crooks get your password by phishing because that's what they do. It's their boutique operation. And then they sell on the passwords to the next lot of guys who infect you with some kind of zombie malware. And they go to the next lot of crooks and say, hey, would you like us to install 
software of your choice. And so, as we show in this case study, there are a whole load of things that happen along the way and dealing with the ransomware and the $2.5 million blackmail demand, sadly, is just the beginning of the recovery process. You've got to try and get in what we've before called the network time machine and work out A, how far back you have to go, in this case, three months, and B, what other things that whole motley collection of crooks did along the way. What accounts did they add with passwords you weren't aware of? What configuration changes did they make that you didn't notice? Which backups did they go in and neutralize? Which data exfiltration commands did they leave running forever and ever that you haven't spotted yet? Which key loggers did they leave around on which computers? And in this particular case study, it all started with a fish. Well, that uh, report, again, is called Fishing Insights 2021. You can find the download links at news.sophos.com. Just search for Fishing Insights. And that report is free to download. And again, chock full of data and fascinating. Now, we will talk about the oh no of the week. And uh, this one tickled me a bit. This is uh, from Reddit user Guslet who says, I work as a systems slash network engineer, but do a solid amount of tier two troubleshooting. So I get a call from our hardware guy, who is a great guy, but not the best troubleshooter. Is that tier with an IE or an EA? <laughs> tier two, tier from two of his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Teary-eyed troubleshooting. Well, or the customer's eyes, perhaps, yeah, depending exactly. on just how badly it's gone. This one may make you cry. Oh, um yeah. Got a call from our hardware guy who is a great guy, but not the best troubleshooter. He's replacing someone's computer, which includes a profile restore from the old computer, which copies the desktop, the documents, things like that. And the malware. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just out there, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Upon using the new computer, the user explained that it was incredibly slow on login and that the files on the desktop had mysteriously disappeared. So I remote into the computer, and sure enough, nothing is showing on the desktop. Uh-oh. Yeah, the computer is definitely crawling, too. I look at the task manager, but nothing seems to be particularly high as far as usage. Navigating to File Explorer, I go to the user's desktop folder, and I find, drumroll please, more than 2,600 files on the desktop. Apparently, Windows got fed up and decided it just cannot handle loading that many files at login. I promptly highlight all the files, put them into a newly created old desktop folder, and then reboot the machine. It then logs in like a dream, and the remaining seven folders that I left show up on the desktop. Now, this is a recurring nightmare of mine because my mother-in-law, who is a real estate agent, has a desktop like this that I fear someday might just give up. Yes, you kind of imagine that the screen will get so heavy that it will fall over with all those <laughs> objects leading off it. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I am of the opinion that if you have a uh, an operating system or, an, or a window manager that allows you to have a directory that's reflected on the desktop and there's anything in there showing up, then it's kind of like you haven't finished the day properly. Yes. So I don't have a very tidy desk, I admit. I like to have lots of stuff. I've got two phones and I've got stuff yes. and I've got my sunglasses in case I suddenly want to go outside and I've got my Raspberry Pis just in case I want to have a bit of hacking. 
But when it comes to desktop, at the end of the day, if there's one file left, you haven't finished work yet. Exactly agree. And my desk kind of cluttered physical desk, but my computer desktop is my to-do list. So if there's too many things on there. It means I've things have gotten out of control. So I like to have it nice and clean by the end of the day or at the very least at the end of the week. I'll tell you what, Doug. I bet that user's old desktop directory is still there. Mm-hmm. Making the, <laughs> making the monitor fall over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got too much stuff, it means there's gold in them thar hills. Exactly. But you've lost sight of it. So back it up, encrypt it, put it somewhere where if you absolutely have to go and back and find it, because push comes to shove, you can. But if you haven't looked at it for seven months, you're not going to look at it again tomorrow. You're just not. Well, we did a lot of good work here today. We'll keep digging into that and uh, keep those desktops clean. And if you have a no-no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at Sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles. You can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.